Welcome to the second episode of the Future Worlds podcast. I'm glad you guys took the time to tune in and listen and watch. Um, we're on Spotify now. We're on Apple Music. Um, our guest today is Jeremy Welt, who is a friend and someone who's been a leader in the metaverse space for quite a long time. We should dive into his background in a minute, but I think um, it's fair to say that he was a trailblazer and a pioneer on not just the metaverse side, but the digital side of the music business as a whole, and then moving into other areas of technology. But uh, let's welcome Jeremy. Well, Jeremy, tell me a little about yourself and give us a little highlight on your background. Thank you. Great, great to be here. Um, I think really, really basic. Uh, I've been focused on the intersection of disruptive technologies and content, to say it simply. Uh, and I'd say within that kind of general statement, really focused on the creators and the fans and how those disrupt disruptive technologies help those two things come together. And even more specifically, the, the businesses that can get created when disruptive te technologies get in between or enable the creators and the fans to come together. And, and not even just the business, the, the content itself. So you have these disruptive technologies that, that come in, they disrupt the business, they disrupt the relationship between the creators and the fans. And then this magical thing also happens where the art evolves too. A soup of those things. Most of that was done at Warner Brothers Records where I, I really feel like it was from web zero to web one. So I was in the music business when the web didn't exist and then it existed. And I was also at Warner Brothers when we moved from web one to web two. So we were used to websites and social came along. So that was, social was as disruptive as the metaverse is today then. It's hard to understand that. But when you were talking to Green Day about Twitter, it sounded like the metaverse. What this thing where you text 140 characters to other people you don't know? Like, so web one to web two was really hard. Um, and I got to also then when I left the music business be part of Maker Studios and explore that same type of disruption, but around video versus music and instead of musicians, YouTube creators. Um, and then the metaverse started early for me and it was really about VR. I think it'll be interesting to touch on the role that VR plays in the metaverse. Um, but I got into the VR in around 2000. 17, um, I worked for a few different companies, a few music companies, um, worked for a great company called Mindshow um, and uh, started a, a, a virtual shopping company that um, I sold to Walmart. And I actually joined Walmart as chief product officer for VR um, in 2018. Um, that was too early for Walmart and that all kind of fell apart, but that was when I started to have real thoughts about what we're calling the metaverse back then, but we were calling VR then really started forming thoughts about what it is, why we need it, when is it going to come? Um, so that's a quick trajectory of some of the things that, that I've done and uh, I'm excited to be here. I also have to so, just say, I met Steve very early on in that process and Steve was a wizard. Just on really simple things, Steve had a very advanced network at his management office, which I think said a lot about his ability to be a part of technology. It was an all Mac network. He wanted it all hooked up to be ethernet, which again, ethernet, that was high end back then. It meant you were doing some serious surfing. He wanted high speed ISDN lines coming in. He wanted everyone networked. And you just didn't see people thinking about setting up their Mac network so that everyone could be on high speed internet. I don't even want to say the year because it's going to sound too old to be believable. But um, that's how I came into contact with Steve Stewart, a manager who wanted a really badass network of functioning internet computers in his office at a time when most people didn't even think that the internet was going to be a thing. So how to get that story in there. <laughs> I think, I, yeah, I think you actually made it happen because none of us knew <laughs> I anything about it. it. Yeah. Jeremy, I, I might Jeremy, have 
I might have fudged my actual expertise to, to get you to let me to do it at the time, but I figured it out. It worked. Jeremy great. made it work. So <laughs> we had lunch a few weeks ago, and something you said stuck out, and I, and I I just want to relate that. I think you said you were one of three original hires at the major label level in digital strategy, right? I think I think you you were at Warner's, and there maybe was someone at Sony, maybe somebody at Union, yeah. maybe not even, but you were one of the first people to ever be hired by a major label to work on digital at all. Is that, is that right? Yeah, there was maybe, I don't want to leave anyone out. There's maybe five to seven people, but we all knew each other. Uh, you know, there was marketing at Sony and my friend Mitch, Mitch Rotter was an early pioneer. Um, and we all knew each other. Rio Cariff, who's a, um, a well-known guy in the music space, he was like an intern. Like, so we were all kind of interns or, or maybe some of us were getting paid floating around and um, we're in at these major labels and uh, there was some executive stewardship like at some of the, a few of the labels like Mark Geiger at Deaf American where I worked and Liz Heller was at Capital. So there were a few major label execs who would let us be interns and kind of put us in the corner and skunk work, worked us. But as far as the people who actually were boots on the ground, there was a very small number of people. And, and I started at Deaf American as an intern building websites and helping Geiger and Steve Rogers get a web presence for Deaf American. And I want to say it was 1997. And I remember and we, had, we had our Sun, Geiger did a deal with Sun Microsystems to have Sun servers and they were in the office, like just sitting on a desk. And the funny thing was sometimes the, the cleaning crew would turn the power off to do stuff. And yeah, the website's not, not open on Sundays because the power, you know, it was just weird stuff like that, but that was just the way that it was. Geiger, I've known, he came to speak at a UCLA class when I was going there. And he and Michelle Anthony came down and I, I thought that guy's ahead of the curve. And then he was the last meeting I took before I signed Stone Temple Pilots to Atlantic. I mm. said, Mark, I'd love to have him sign to American. And he's like, I just don't hear it, Steve. I, I, I need to go back to <laughs> Jesus and Mary Chain. I'm like, okay. So I gave him a shot. And, and you know, he was head of marketing at Deaf American. He was like the, the CMO at Deaf American. It's crazy. And, and then he had a company called Artist Direct, right? Yes. Where, where they were way ahead of the curve. They were, they were probably 10 well, years ahead. If we're going to do it, let's go back. He bought the Ultimate Band List from yes, kids UBL. at Pasadena. And I was working on that because what Ultimate Band List was the first directory Google, this is pre-Google, everybody. Like, oh, yeah. Pre-iPhone. The, the, fir yeah, the first directory of music bands that ever existed. So if you wanted to find a band's website, you get ultimate band list. It was, it was manual. That's what I was spending a lot of my time doing, finding links and entering them into the site. Ultimate band list became artist direct and came on to be all the other great things. But for those who want the full lesser, ultimate band list was the definitive music resource in, in that era. And Rick Rubin came in, right? And he was involved yep, with- He was with part of it. Artist direct and they, yep. they, they kind of, so I think they were way ahead of their time and they were developing web sites, web presences or accounts for each artist to sell merch, sell ticketing, have some information and some streaming. I think it was MP3s probably back then. Um, and then just, there wasn't enough traction. I think bandwidth was an issue back then. No one, you know, very few people had high speed internet. And I think it was just, they were early. And then I think early. Ted Field from Interscope, well, before that, Ted Field's family out of Chicago, um, ended up buying them at some point. And then I, yeah. I, I think Rick got paid out because he was the major shareholder. Uh, and then Mark, and there's one or two other guys I think came out of that, but a, a good 10 years ahead of their time. So props to you for being there and props to Mark Geiger for uh, 
Running I just was updating the links at that stage. So, <laughs> but I did learn a lot of stuff. Sorry, a lot of stuff. I learned a lot about the resistance to change in that role because I was didn't have a lot of experience and I believed in the internet 8,000%. And I was interacting with people who not only didn't believe in it, but like were derogatory towards people who did believe it, right? Like it was just not, it was just not accepted. Um, and so there were, traditional executive heavyweights that just, again, were not interested. So I, I, I do feel like if you think about the idea of going into Fortune 500 companies or to big music companies and talking about metaverse today, and you think of the resistance that exists, it was no different than, than what I was facing in, in 1996. It's the same thing. So building up that ability to, I think, understand why people don't believe and then pivot the way that I talk about it to make them believe was a skill I was lucky to get and have been practicing and honing in and almost comes second nature now, but that it is that listening. Like, I think if we talk about NFTs in the metaverse. I think the critical voices were, were really important to listen to. And it, it became this thing of like, you're not a believer, bro. Like, you know, to the moon, like all this just kind of like fluff as opposed to like, why are all these people having concerns about it? And I think, that I just remember I always, just from that experience that I was talking about in American where people didn't want to hear about it, but I was always like, well, but these people are running the business and they know the artist, they must know something, like there must be some value there. And uh, anyways, so I think that all the stuff that you and I experienced then applies a thousand percent to the metaverse and the challenges that we're facing today. Well, you were there, I mean, like you said, the labels are notoriously adverse to change. and. Well, I think the fact that they would hire you, uh, and this is probably what, late 90s, early 2000s, or maybe mid 2000s, was a signal a after Napster, right? definitely after, after Napster, because they got, they got slapped pretty hard with Napster and file sharing. And, and if you don't know, the rosters were cut down from maybe 200 artists to like 50, staffs were cut down by 20 or 30 or 40% in many cases. Um, the industry was hit very hard by file sharing. And some of the backlash of that was 360 deals, right? Where labels now wanted a piece of your publishing and your merchandising and your touring areas that they didn't really have play in before that. So it made some of those subsequent record deals very onerous for artists. But the fact that they hired digital strategists like yourself, to me was an indicator that they were starting to look at the space seriously. They knew they had to play in it eventually. And I'm just wondering what that climate was like back then, like you said, at first they were adverse and then they had to embrace it. And you were on the front lines of that, that kind of embracing going on, right? Yeah, I was, I was pretty lucky. I, I got hired from, I went from intern working for free to paid intern where basically they justified paying me because I was managing the Mac network. Geiger was also a visionary like yourself and that he insisted that Deaf American had an all Mac network. Again, Macs didn't play real nice in 97, 98, but that's what they wanted. And so that, that's how I got to get paid was I was actually the IT person with a, a great a great guy named Steve Rogers who was also doing tons of internet stuff. And, um, and so that was how they paid me because the internet wasn't important enough to get paid but they needed someone to fix the computer. So I was like, hey, if you can keep the computers running you can work on the web stuff in the free time. And then the web started to hit the radar and they, they opened up a staff position. And so I took a staff position at Deaf American um, and then the dot-com boom kind of kicked in and I had a chance to go to a few music-based web startups um, and I did that, but quickly I got pulled back in by Maverick Records uh, in maybe two years in 1999. 
And so from, from there, from Maverick Records and the Warner Brothers, I was lucky. When they brought me into Maverick, who was partners, Guy Osiri, Madonna, Ronnie, they told me they wanted me to stand on a table and, and bring the future to them. Like they, they, they wanted me in people's faces and challenging people. That was like in the interview. And I was like, okay, I'm your guy. And so I was very lucky there. We were, uh, we had huge hits from, from, from the standpoint of being a hot label. Madonna was, was hot, um, you know, Prodigy, um, Alanis Morissette coming off the biggest album ever. So we had all this clout in the marketplace that wanted to work with us, but we were still majority owned. We weren't fully owned by the Warner Music Group. So I was really able to bend policy, try things that people um, weren't able to try at the majors, but with the support of the majors. And so I was extremely lucky to be at Maverick to have those leaders empower, um, empower me and believe in this future. I mean, Guy here we know is a visionary guy. He was back then. And so he was just like, this all makes sense. Go, go crazy with it. So that was great. And at, at Warner Brothers, Tom Wally, for the internet team and for the stuff, he was just very supportive. And he felt like his role was to empower us to find the future and protect us from the BS. And he did that um, effectively. So I was, oh, a lot of the first that I was able to do at that time, a lot of the ground that we broke to having management be on board. I don't think it was that place at every label. And I don't think it was at that place with, you represented that Steve for the management side too. You knew what was going on. And so I don't think most labels and, and many of the managers at those early days were empowering like that, but I was lucky to be a part of it. So where do you think today, I mean, let's fast forward ahead 20, well, maybe 20 years. <laughs> it sounds so long. Where do you see major labels sitting in terms of Metaverse Web3 adoption? Do you think it's much easier? Like like we, I think we said at the opening, you're seeing the same story play again, but is it different this time? Are you seeing a much better adoption rate? Is it, are there still many obstacles or what, what's your take on this? I think that the difference is that the labels are profitable during this disruption where during the Napster area, as you alluded to, the, the revenue was going down. So um, they were trying to do innovative deals while protecting the existing revenue streams. And that was tough. There was a lot of conversation when YouTube was coming up of, you know, the digital business was growing and being established and singles were 99 cents and that represented the future. That was a pretty good hedge the labels did to get that model that helped. But at the same time, there was all these other things like streaming and YouTube. And there was this belief that, you know, every time there was some number of YouTube streams that that was taking away a download. And there was a lot of effort to calculate how many streams equaled a download and then to charge YouTube based on that. So I'm just gonna, this isn't quite right, but someone figured out that, someone thought they figured out that hundred streams equaled the download. And so then YouTube should pay us a penny a stream. That's never gonna work. Like it's, it's a hard place to do a deal when you're coming up with the model based on protecting an other model. So I think that while the business development teams and those great groups were incredibly aggressive in forward thinking, those biz dev teams had a reality from their bosses of like, keep the money flowing. And so many of those deals didn't work great or the payments, people who would do the payments, they were too high and the companies would go out of business because they couldn't make the payment work at that level. The scaling wasn't there. Like they could afford to pay a penny a stream or sorry, a, a tenth of a penny of a stream, but there weren't enough users to make that work for us. So today they're flush with cash and they're doing deals in Web3 left and right. So that part is different. They're doing many more partnerships. They're trying to do them in the spirit of, I think, the way Web3 and the metaverse um, are, are done. Um, and so I can applaud them for that. Um, from some of my talkings in the day-to-day -day, though, the relationship between label artist and manager, that stuff's still all, I think, somewhat 
problematic. You, you do have a lot of different people with a lot of different goals trying to do things. And so I think that the analogy is, is that nothing really made sense of all the things that we're talking about until streaming reached scales, consumers were on board, and then everything could just kind of work. And so while I do see the deals happening, I'm not sure if the implementation of the plans and, and the, the risk is there yet to actually embrace those platforms. And I guess I mean something like this, like, you know, at some point, a superstar artist <clears throat> had to just say, we're not doing CDs for this one. You know what I mean? That was like the big moment. Like we're all in on the future. We want everyone to be in the streaming platform. So I'm not putting out a CD because I want these platforms to be successful. So I guess there's some version of like, an artist who's like, I'm not touring and flying on planes. I'm going to be in the metaverse or a label that has a superstar artist, the top level who agrees to a completely non-traditional plan with a high level of risk where they're putting all their chips in the basket or other eggs in the basket, sorry, on a, a something that launches in the metaverse and is only NFT driven. And that's, that's the only way to do it. I think we need to see some of those chances and some of those risks starting to take place not just in little one-offs, but in ways that the label, the artist, the publishers, the whole value chain is like, we're, we're moving in that direction. And, I, and, I'm, and, I'm, and I'm not sure that maybe the time is right for that to happen. So deals are being done. We haven't really seen implementation happen yet in a way that indicates that we're really um, charging into this future. That you also- answer, I think we got there a little bit. We're instrumental in a company called WayVR, which I think came to prominence especially during the pandemic where everything was locked down and the live performance, live concert business basically ground to a halt. And I think was crazy. You know, one of the, one of the two major financial pillars in the music business, you got copyright and publishing and you've got live performances, right? And one of those went away when the pandemic hit and the venues closed. So tell me about how you saw the labels and artists adopting, adapting, into that space and where do you think that's gonna roll? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, the pandemic was really interesting because it was very odd to find yourself at a company that was facing hyper growth. Well, everyone else in the news, it's like job economy down and like our phones were never ringing so much as they had in the past. I think um, I'll, I'll give you two answers to that question. The first thing that I think, and this is very important because these social, these consumer social changes normally take a lot longer to take, to, to, to implement. So I guess what I mean is like, people often in Web3 music will talk about Spotify as like Daniel Elk invented this thing and he changed the music business. And it's not really what happened. We had had streaming things that were exactly like Spotify for 10 years before. It was called Rhapsody and the consumer wasn't ready. And at some moment, the labels did the deal, Spotify came along with a little better product and the consumer was ready. But the idea of playlists versus albums and all that stuff, piracy and a whole bunch of things had to happen before people became comfortable, comfortable with that. Before the pandemic, when we would try to explain to people what a virtual concert was, it was impossible. It was like, oh, VR, we're not into that. No, 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 it, it's a, no, virtual doesn't only mean VR. It can be, it's virtual entertainment. It, it can happen anywhere. And then people would be confused. And, and you know, we changed the name of the company from Wave VR to, to, to Wave XR to try to find some name that would indicate you don't need a headset. Um, but it just didn't stick. We would do press releases, we would write copy, we would announce things, we would talk to the journalists who were writing about us and we're like, we need you to talk about it in this way, a virtual concert is this. And they would end up just using VR and the thing. Well, once COVID hit, everyone started using the word virtual to mean just 
time to, to mean things that were more aligned with, with what a virtual concert is. And that had nothing to do with the headset. So suddenly any concert that was streamed was a virtual concert. And so suddenly what we were doing, everybody was using the right words. They understood what our business was and they wanted it. That would have taken probably three or four more years without COVID. And that was pretty stunning to see how quick that happened. Sorry, did you feel the push more from the artist side or more from the label side? Because I know the labels want revenue as well, but like I said, they're sharing in some of the merchandising and touring revenue. So I'm sure they, they had a hand in that. It's really fascinating what happened. Um, it was the labels and it was the artists. The labels did step up. Um, they did recognize it. They did understand it. And they did want to be a part of it. Um, so we had great conversations with the labels and we had great conversations with the artists. We had great conversations with the managers. I think what was really interesting is if you remember back the first thing that started happening were charity live streams, like to support the unions, you can't. So if I would just kind of summarize what happened on the artist side, artists want to do charity shows. They want to do shows where they're not getting paid. People are donating to help cause whatever. That was like the inbound for about three weeks, two weeks, maybe even shorter. Then the tone switched because it was kind of like, wait, there's a ton of people who are out of work. I don't know if I really feel really good about doing a concert where the whole point is asking you to give money because you'd need money too, right? So it's like the tone changed very quickly. The charity show thing lasted a few weeks and then it became, artists started to get a little concerned about that. So then it was like, well, we want to have some charity but we also want to do it that. Then about like, it felt like maybe um, two months in, the artists were having conversations with their managers and they were like, you're broke. Like you're not touring for two years, you don't have any money. And so suddenly, and I'm not saying I was in those rooms but like, the tone changed really quickly to like, how can we make money? So it was like, charity, maybe not charity, we need to make money. So artists did a pretty good job, I think, of identifying the potential of virtual concerts to make money. Now, they were also concerned about charging a lot for a virtual concert in the pandemic when people were suffering. So we didn't instantly see huge price points came, but, but like their desire to understand how this would make them money in the future as a new business that conversation happened very quickly because on the other end of the phone, they were like, here's what your balance sheet looks like with no in-person merch sales or no ticket sales for the next two years. Um, so it speeded that up. Now it speeded everything up, but I do, do feel that like, you know, that when ticket sales stopped happening, virtual concerts became a legitimate medium. And what, so what do you identify as the major difference between a live stream show and a virtual concert? So. I know some some artists go into the you know they're they're doing stuff in Roblox or uh, Fortnite when when you're basically playing in the cloud and there's it's a virtual venue, but are there are there certain depictors or, or certain elements in a VR performance versus just a straight live stream performance? Yeah, um, I'd say number one and the Wave team has done an incredible job at proving this out with, with data and lots of examples is interactivity. Um, so the wave shows are done in the game engine. They're not camera based. So it's like a video game and you can build in all sorts of interactivity opportunities for the fans to have agency and control of the show in a way that is much more akin to the, the positive experience you have in a video game than with a camera. Meaning like camera live stream interactivity is like switch, switch between five cameras, change your view. And, and what we found is that's not enough to get the endorphins or, or what Wave has found. It's not enough for the in, endorphins and the people who are used to more interactive content. That's just not enough. It, it gets boring after a while. Um, in, a, in a Wave show, you can 
um, change lots of graphical elements in the show. You can do things so your screen name appears near the artist. You can um, vote on which song or which world the artist gets teleported to for the next show. Um, there are uh, feedback mechanisms that you can only do in the real world, like bar graphs for like how many people are chatting in, in the moment. And you know the graph behind the thing starts to go up and the whole crowd can feel the tension and more people start chanting. And then like some magical thing happens and there's just all these like really powerful peak moments that interactivity, when you look at the data, it, it looks like a video game must be happening because of the interactivity level you see, but it's really people just getting really excited and engaging around the show. So interactivity is a big one. Um, I'd say the, the next one is the, um, is the kind of the avatar or the artistic format, right? Like the idea of an artist becoming an avatar, that's exciting. Like you may have seen your favorite artist on show on a show before, and maybe you didn't see this tour. So you're seeing a new stage set up and you're seeing what your thing is wearing. But, but when an artist is becoming an avatar, that, that's really um, fantastical. So the whole art style, um, I think is an important second thing. Like it's, this is, a, this, is this feels like a, a legitimate, artistic statement by the artist that's worth me putting in my calendar at eight o'clock, maybe even putting it up on the big screen, having my friends come over and checking it out because it's that visceral. And then I would say the third one is just this wonderful thing we always said in VR, and it's just the ability to do things you can't do in the real world, right? So that could be playing on a cloud or looking like a dragon instead of a human, but it could also mean, uh, I do 15 shows because I'm doing them from the studio and I'm going to tour the world, but I'm not leaving um, Los Angeles soundstage. And when I say tour the world, I don't just mean doing the same show over and over again. You could change the graphics or you could do a wave on Waves platform, or you could do a wave with one of Waves partners that integrates with other platforms that have different graphical styles. And so again, whether it's what you do in the show, flying around, what the audience does, growing big, growing small, playing on clouds, or touring the world without leaving a virtual production stage, virtual concerts as opposed to pure live streams let you do things you can't do in the real world. And that provides a lot of satisfaction for fans. And, and what does it take on the artist side? So, I mean, I've seen you know some of the green stream stuff, I've seen motion capture, but instead of just sitting there with a microphone, do they have to actually contort themselves or what's the process, the production process where they have if they want to fly through a cloud, I mean, what's, is that yeah. done just all digitally or is there any physical representation yeah. they have to participate you know, in? I, I didn't say this one because we were talking about live streams, but, but, but when we talk about virtual concerts, one differentiator for wave compared to Fortnite and some other ones is waves are live. live. So waves are live performances. They're not, um, a lot of the other ones that have had a lot of scale in Roblox and other platforms have not been live. Um, so the process is the same, likely whether you're live or not. Ours are live, so that audience engagement is with the artist in real time. To answer your question more specifically about the production behind it, the technology for body capture just keeps getting better. I believe Wave um, is still using the, the, the body suits. So they're, they're, they're not body suits like you used to see big, huge balls all over them. They're, they're pretty simple like track suits that you put on that have good tracking. Um, and they basically just perform their concert in that suit that maps to the avatar and it looks flawless. The other exciting difference is that when they're performing, they are seeing a mirror of themselves as the avatar and the concert world they're performing in. 
So that's a pretty profound experience most artists have shared with us. And I've done it myself too, just sometimes testing the suit and I'm a dragon. I go like this and flames come out. Like um, it's pretty powerful. And when we talk a little bit more about some of the things that are unique about the metaverse, that's part of what we talk about, right? Like um, if the 3D graphics and the response lag time is good enough in the metaverse, your brain doesn't really care. It's like, I'm a dragon. And then suddenly something changes in your whole, um, your whole demeanor. Artists all experience that and they would talk to us about that. They were like, huh. So I'd say what we're seeing today is a lot of artists are performing their live show, but they're doing it as their avatar. And something about their avatar and seeing the world of performing in tends to make the show extra special from whatever the artist is doing. But I'd say that the next level, so, so that's how it works. Um, if, if there's scenes where they're flying around and the artist is on a, it's just all like a movie, but they're just doing it all live and the audience is seeing the avatar. We were down Inside at a place called Echo Studios in El Segundo Torrance, actually, last week, and went into a motion capture dome, right? It was, this, yeah. it was probably 30 by 30, and there must have been, I don't know, 100 cameras in this, on this mesh dome, and they used it exactly for that, for mapping. And then there was another room where they had a, like a facial mapping where they could map expressions. And a yeah. lot of major studios were using that technology to capture for use in feature films. Yes. Um, but it's, it was amazing to see how much technology was, was needed. And, and we asked the guy about cameras, like, you know, how many cameras and do you keep updating this? He's like, oh yeah, these are the most, you know, these $5,000 cameras and there's 50 of them and they, they surround you. So there's a lot of production, I think, that goes into doing what you're doing at Wave, which might be different than animating somebody like you said maybe in a roblox situation but um it's it's I, I think a whole new way and and i did hear the exact thing that you said they said once you are aware of your avatar it changes the way that you mm -hmm. see yourself and changes the performance and is some type of weird cognitive cognitive you know awareness that you see and feel and affects your performance, almost like feedback, right? It's like immediate it's feedback. It's a feedback loop. And the feedback loop isn't your face with all the judgment and self-esteem issues that might come with how you look that day. That stuff is suddenly free from the input you're receiving and your brain just does things differently when it doesn't have that signal coming in. And um, I think where it's going um, and um, I, I was, I think where, where it's going is the, the next stage is the it, the artists are the crucial part of this, right? So the artists who worked with Wave um, were great. They, they leaned in, they wanted to know about it, but it was the first time they'd ever done anything like that. And they took off their suits and they talked about it and they were blown away. The next phase is artists who construct their next musical cycle around that event, right? So for the most part, I think the challenges that are happening today is they're the label level, they're still kind of one-offs designed to support a more traditional plan. Um, not saying all the waves have been that, and, and they're, they're doing a lot more in the future that will be different. But I think the idea of when it's integrated in to the plan and the art and, and everything's one campaign, but even more importantly, when the artist is performing to the world, um, I'm an advisor at this point with Wave. This show happened after I was CMO, but they did a show with Teflon Sega. Teflon Sega is a native avatar artist. The artist, I don't even know what to say, he, he or she, whoever's powering it, it's only known to the fans as an avatar. And it's powered by a real person. 
he's blue. He looks crazy. He's got great songs. He's got a lot of followers, a lot of streams and, and wave did a show with him. And Teflon performed in the world he created. And it was very interesting to see that, like he was doing performance things that only a virtual artist would do. So while John Legend put on a great show, you got, he was doing a lot of what John Levin normally does and he was in a virtual place, but he was doing a show. Teflon Sego was like kind of moving as if he was in space. His show was in space and it was on this bridge and it just seemed like it'd be cold and windy. And he, he had body movements that were matching what you, like if you're watching Star Wars and Luke's on the bridge and he's in space, he's like battling to get across the bridge because he's in space, you know? And like, so Teflon Sego wasn't just standing on a space bridge singing, he was, acting as if, you know, he was in space and it was cold and it was wind and he was, you know, it was, you know, it was, it was intense and it made the world come to life. So with any of these new technologies, like I gave reference to artists in Twitter for the first year, their managers just sharing the promotional links on their account. And it's like Green Day, new album, in-store, so-and-so, or whatever band it is. And then eventually the bands kicked, took over and wanted to use it to communicate directly. And that's, I think the same thing we'll start to see in the metaverse space. Artists will get a feel Big artists, successful artists will get a feel of what a native virtual concert or a native avatar is, and they'll build that in their strategy, and they'll apply the full force of their creativity to the medium, where, again, like I said, right now, they're just experiencing for the first time waves making all this amazing art for them when they're just walking into it. But three years, they're going to need to make their own art. It's not, it's not going to be something that someone's going to do for you, and they're going to need to have a vision, and then they're going to need to go into that virtual stage and bring that character to life. And that's gonna be amazing for the artists and fans because they're both gonna create a new experience for each other um, when they're both fully committed. I was gonna say, what do you think that looks like from the audience side? Because I know to me, one of the big, big pluses on metaverse is the community, right? You can actually bring people with you. You can meet people, you can socialize. It's not just this one-to-one that we see in web two. And if you're shopping or going to a show or going down the street, this is now where, hey, I'm bringing my best friend, I'm bringing my family, I'm going to meet some folks there, whatever. It gives you an opportunity to, to come with people and to, and to share an experience. But is, is, as an artist performance, are you going to see more interactivity? Are you going to see people being able to have a meet and greet? Or what, What's your thought on that? Well, I think that if we abstract it and we say, um, and I was, I, I w- if we say, what's better about the metaverse? Why is Web3 better than Web2? I think that answer applies to virtual concert if we abstract it. Meaning that I think that we are all hoping that the metaverse and elements of web three and the spatial element of those places, it doesn't necessarily mean you have to be in a headset walking around, but video games are 3D spaces that give the user agency of control of what's happening. Whereas on the camera live stream, you may have some agency to switch the view, but the cameras are looking at what the cameras are looking at and that's what you're gonna see. Um, so again, I think that increased sense of agency, that increased sense of spatial connectivity, the fact that avatars can communicate gait and body language, the eyes and the, and the face in a way that you can't do just on tr- traditional kind of chat. I think we're thinking, those of us who believe in the metaverse think that, that, that the general version of the metaverse, whether it's gaming or, or music or business uses, are going to improve a lot of the ability for people to connect. And I do believe that, and we can talk more about really why and go deeper on that. But I think that the belief is that virtual concerts will benefit from all those things in, in the metaverse. So the idea of getting your avatar ready for the show, that, that just seems fun, right? Other people are gonna see you. 
I'm going to put on my dragon head that I bought in Roblox a couple of weeks ago, and I'm going to buy the virtual t-shirt or I'm not, or I'm going to make my own, or I'm going to add a third arm and a tail for the show. Like, I don't know, like, but the ability to have that toolbox open up so that you can show off and have that social experience, the metaverse should allow all those things to happen that are a little bit missing from the traditional, just streaming a concert right now. And we're, there's many we're, other examples, but that's just like a teaser. We met with Schechter uh, also a couple of weeks ago, the guitar manufacturer, and we're, we're, we're talking about some digital products and a presence in the metaverse. And what we're realizing is the technology to actually maybe play the guitar, you know, isn't there in the 8-bit world of, of, a, of a Roblox or a Decentraland sure. quite yet, but you can carry it as a wearable and identify by carrying it. So say you have a Steel Panther show and Steel Panther makes a deal with Schechter and says anybody that buys our customized Steel Panther, you know, guitar issue at Schechter, put it on when you come to the show and you'll get in for free or put it on. Yes. And it's almost like a badge. It's almost like wearing the band's concert t-shirt. It yeah. identifies you as part of the tribe, identifies yeah. you as someone that's, that's bought into this band's work or the artist's songs or whatever. But you can, I see an eventual, you know, we're talking about digital wallets, which aren't necessarily so visible yet, but what you're wearing or what you're carrying with you as you journey through the metaverse could indeed in indicate what tribes you're part of, what interests you have, you know, in a way that you can't even do in real life. Yeah, hundred percent. And I, I think, I think the basis of all this stuff and why the VR phases were important when we the first part of my time at, at Walmart was making a proof of concept for them as a consultant that should, we could show to the board, Doug McMillan and Mark Laurie, and show them what was possible, right, with the medium. And, and at that time, Walmart did not want to just build a Walmart virtual reality. They wanted to explore new things that weren't possible in the physical world. So to really make it an effective case to Walmart and the board, we had to really tap into some of the science of how the brain works, right? And I'll just make a short version of it, which is just that the brain, the brain doesn't care about your reality or fake reality. It's just processing information. And if the fidelity and the interactivity and the immersion is high enough, the, the brain will, that's your reality. Um, and specifically with VR, with six degrees of freedom and latency below a certain level, latency, latency meaning like if you're moving your character around and it, it takes a lag, till the movement happens, the brain does go, this isn't real because <clears throat> of the lag. It's expecting cause and response, especially in VR when your hands are moving around. And high enough fidelity of an image, it, those three things happen. The brain just processes the information coming in as if it's reality. And we used to kind of explain that like, that's how like it makes memories more than other mediums, right? Because you're, a, a memory is made. Like I just went and did this with this person on the top of a mountain while the sun was setting. And then we got these gold coins and we were victorious. Like that's a memory. And it goes closer to the brain of like something I did than it does something I watched. Now, and I also- I'm ridiculously a, oversimplifying just to be clear, but you get the point. Um, yeah. So your I point is hundred percent right. The social I read a element study that, that was about. talking about 3D versus 2D. And they said that your brain, because we have stereo eyes, right? we see in 3D that the, the memory factor, the, the amount of retention you'll have when you experience something in 3D 
is like a hundred times more than 2D. Big time. In other words, and seeing a screen or reading something on 2D on a piece of paper is one thing to remember, like seeing a movie, but being in a movie that's 3D and you can look around and experience something all around you creates a much, much richer, deeper memory inside our mind, which I think leads to, like you said, a richer experience and a, and a different type of uh, memory. I think it's a great point. And I think if you can imagine from the Walmart, what we call the e-commerce perspective, the re pro like they had this thing, this stat, I'm gonna get some of these stats wrong. I mean, this isn't like anything secretive, but like they started putting 3D spinners on product pages. And they called them 3D spinners instead of just a 2D image of a shoe. And the e-commerce team would just be like, wow, conversions like automatically just up 15% just with the spinner. Now you can imagine when you're in a virtual space holding a sneaker, I mean, again, for, for, for e-commerce, like this stuff is gonna be fundamental because product exploration, you leave not with just a completely inherent understanding of the product in a way you don't on a two-day image, but like the lust for the product, the demand, the desire to have it all feels so much more what I would associate with being at a store waiting for a real shoe drop, you know? It's, it's, it's profound. So you're exactly right. I think that that's a great way to describe it. So I'm talking to the women that run DressX, right? Daria and Natalia, I'm not sure if anybody knows. DressX is probably the preeminent digital fashion provider. I mean, they're a platform, they're a marketplace, but they're also bringing in a lot of traditional high fashion brands like Balenciaga and Gucci and, and helping them integrate into the space. And they're way ahead. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, if you think about clothing, the avatars, you have to wear something in the metaverse. If you're gonna walk around, most people aren't going to walk around naked. So you're going to have to clothe yourself in some something, right? And that's going to be big business. And I think we talked about, I talked about this with Michael Patterson in the last episode, but the inventory, the shipping, the, all the, all the physicalness that goes into creating a fashion line is eliminated, right? Mm -hmm. and, and you will be able to, to pick out clothing or, or something that you're wearing almost immediately, customize it if you like, um, and then change that at a whim, right? You, you walk from your office space or your workspace into a nightclub, into a restaurant. You could, you could have a, an entire wardrobe with you at all times, which I think is going to change the way that people interact, change the way that people behave. And there's going to be vehicles that you go to be getting from one place to another. Sure, you could probably go from one portal to the next with a click, but some people may want to arrive on a motorcycle, arrive in a car. Yep. And you yep. want to have maybe a place to hang out with your friends. Maybe you want to have a, a house or a condo on the beach or a house, a penthouse in Manhattan, whatever that may be, that experience is something that I think we can share. Again, it's this community building and bringing your friends and family with you um, in ways that you can't right now. And, and I think that opens up so much potential and so many opportunities for retailers. I mean, just the fact that Walmart is jumping in at that level, right? They're probably, they're the biggest retailer, I believe. Um, brick and mortar for yeah. sure. Amazon, yeah, for sure. They're like the biggest, online. almost the biggest company in, in the world. And they're jumping into Roblox fully ready Full, to go. Fully ready that's to really go. Interesting about, that's really interesting too, because it, it should tell you a lot about how mature Roblox is, right? Because if you're going to work with Walmart, you're, there's going to be a lot of disclosures and a lot of like, one thing Walmart is not going to have is like kids getting screwed around with or data breach, you know what I mean? And Roblox, they'd rather just go, we're good. Like we're doing our 500 billion top line, like we're good. But, you know, so it's really tells you a lot about how sophisticated I feel like Roblox has gotten or how, how enterprise level they must be able to deliver data and results because 
that's a pretty big partnership who's pretty demanding Walmart of, of their partners. And that's just pretty common knowledge that they, that they are. Um, You're making so me think, think of something. Be- what do you think about Walmart going to Decentraland or the Sandbox? I mean, do you think they're going to have a presence across the board or you think they're going to focus on one place initially? Or, or how do you see that? Well, I, I thought the one thing that was interesting about the Walmart agreement or the Walmart announcement Roblox is it was driven by the CMO, which that's like pretty big time. Like if you look at a lot of other initiatives, including the one that I was part of, we were part of the store number eight incubator lab. So, you know, oftentimes the new thing goes in like the shiny lab division, but when the CMO starts doing it, that means it's arrived. Um, that's a, a generalization, but I, I, I thought that, that was interesting that that's where this initiative was coming from. So it, it feels like, like they have a pretty good sense that this is the scale is there, the demographic that they're trying to address is there, and that whatever um, challenge that they're facing with consumers, which I can name a few general ones that again aren't, aren't private, but like you know, um, Walmart doesn't have a lot of high-end brands. You know, they did a lot of acquisitions with Bonobos to try to get that more metro consumer. They bought Jet.com because they weren't getting those like urban, like, like city-dwelling millennials, right? Um, and so they did a bunch of things to try to, to do that. And so, you know, Roblox like delivering a younger consumer in a way that makes the Walmart brand feel relevant, right? Beyond low prices, right? That it seems like that's kind of what they're trying to achieve. The Walmart value proposition for the most part is low prices, good shopping experience, lots of products, but it's low prices, right? Um, and I think that uh, that the metaverse provides an opportunity and Roblox provides an opportunity to do branding in a way that's not really possible with their TV spots and with their stores because of the constraints they have to power their massive business and what works them today. So I think it's pretty phenomenal. And I would bet that they're probably operating on multiple levels, meaning like this is more than a metaverse play. This is a just straight up branding play where the metaverse is the solution. This is a acquisition play for consumers under 13 to reinvigorate the brand. This is a place for them to put brands that maybe don't fit in the store, right? Like in the way they want it to do, because Skullcandy can only afford so much space, but they think the brand's cool. You know, that floor space in Walmart's expensive, right? It's all profit per, per square foot and it's sure. a machine. So so there's sometimes things that they may want to do with a brand like Skull, Skullcandy or some of the, I think Skullcandy's in the metaverse thing. I might be getting that wrong, but they brought a few of their brands in there. I think it's a chance for them to also experiment with brand partners in a way that they can't do in the store and in ways that are probably refreshing for partners of Walmart, right? It's like, I don't got a million dollars for your end cap. What else can we do? Because kids love us. And then they're like, well, come over here and roll. Like, so I think it's probably a lot more sophisticated than just a test metaverse play. I, I bet knowing that Walmart was a great company and I was impressed by how smart they were that they're operating, again, speculation, but they're operating on probably many different levels um, of taking care of their customer and using the metaverse to do that in a really sophisticated way. Let's take the flip of that because you made me think about this when you were just speaking about Walmart. What about Roblox? What about Epic Games and Fortnite? What about these gaming platforms? Do you think they will evolve to be more general facing versus youth gamers, right? So if Roblox is getting Walmart and they've got to appeal to millennials or, or boomers or whatever that demographic might be, do you think they're going to modify their platform to be more open to someone that maybe isn't strictly a gamer. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, it, it, it's gamers is like, it, 
is everybody. So, um, and the gaming revenue just dwarfs movies and entertainment as we were talking about. So, and I also think that people don't even really properly factor in mobile games, you know, like they're massive and they don't like people talk about Fortnite and like, but, but, you know, you know, um, wave was, was up for the MTV's virtual concert. They did a VMA for best virtual concert of the year. Wave was nominated, which is awesome. They didn't win, but Blackpink won for something they did in, in, in a mobile game, yes. totally different fidelity level than what wave does, but the scale is crazy. So my sense is, is I would say gaming's kind of creeping its way into everything. And, um, I think that there will be a gaming metaverse platform for every demo. And that I don't think that gaming companies will need to push into demos they don't have, but they will make metaverse offerings for the demos that use their product. And so that timing might be different, meaning like when it's right for Roblox to do something might be different when it's right for Candy Crush to do it, or when it's right for a game on the Sony PS5 to start to integrate that kind of stuff because different consumers are coming on board at different times. But I think what you're looking at is you're starting to realize that, and we haven't really talked about the definition of the metaverse, but you know, I think we're pretty advanced and people are kind of saying, Fortnite's kind of a version of the metaverse and Roblox is kind of a version of the metaverse. And then it's not that far if you kind of, kind of go like, well, almost any game that's super engaging is kind of like a metaverse. And so we're right there. Like there's so many different ways that the metaverse could pop out and we don't know where it'll be. It might not come from people who are building dedicated meta places like Sandbox. It might just emerge from something that already is an extremely you know, immersive game. We don't but know. I think the gaming engines are, are critical, right? The fact that you've sure. got this high bandwidth, high speed processing that can bring you the photorealism and a lot of the other things that are, that are moving in the space. So that basis, that backbone is important. The number of eyeballs you have there is critical also. There's a, like you said, everybody's a gamer. But what I'm also noticing is the gamification. So it's, you don't necessarily have to play a hardcore game, but maybe you get points by walking down a certain number of aisles at Walmart, right? Maybe you get points by visiting Walmart, checking in once a day. There's, there's little inklings of gamification I think are going to ease their way into the consumer buying habit that, that allows, yeah, that, that allows more touch and feel without being overtly in a game, right? I, I don't need to have a weapon. I don't need to shoot anybody. I'm not chasing people around, but I might check in more often. I might have a loyalty program that makes sense. Or maybe there's a leaderboard. If I know, I don't know, I, I buy my Starbucks every day. I'm going to see how many people I can compete with on how many Ventes I can, <laughs> I get a week or something. But <laughs> well, I, I don't... think, that that process of bringing gaming elements into the actual purchasing realm will be super valuable. I agree. And I think I'm going to tap on some, some things that you said on the previous podcast, which I don't know if is, is out yet, but like you were kind of talking about, this is under the guise of, we don't have enough data to really know what consumers want. And so, so all of us should, should remember that the consumers kind of drove things, right? Like piracy pushed forward playlisting because that's how you did it. You just got individual songs and you made your playlist. And like, no one at a major label said, we're going to move our consumers to playlists. I mean, yes, they did after the behavior emerged and they saw it happening. And it was like, whoa, we'll just playlist. But it, it, it started from consumer behaviors, right? Um, there was, at that time, people who would say things like, but the, the, the 
consumer, they're not gonna want just to, they want the artist's work and the album, and it turned out that they didn't, right? They wanted the songs they wanted. Um, and even in terms of production values, when I was at Maker Studio, it was like, when Disney acquired us, the joke was like, we bought a bunch of dog on skateboard videos. And it was like, yeah, no, you did. You bought like literal competition for your TV shows because that's what kids want to watch. When they watch your sitcom, they sound like you. You know what I mean? They're like, well, who's making, who are you making this stuff for? And so no one foresaw that the style of editing and the way vloggers didn't care even in the early days about lighting and how professional it was. You know, you take a studio exec and they're like, that's unprofessional content, right? And then, but you take a kid and you have them watch a pilot for a sitcom and the kid goes, that's inauthentic content, right? right. Sure, and that, and authenticity was, authenticity was more important than production value and a bunch of executives missed that. So now let's talk about the metaverse and we're sitting here like, I've got a bunch of answers, a bunch of great examples, but I'd like to say, we don't know. And I'll use something that you said as a great debate point because we were talking about Red Rocks and, and you were saying, you know, people love Red Rocks. It's, I've, I've, I don't know if I've, I've been there once, I think, but like, I want to go again. My friend lives in Colorado. We keep planning a show that we want to see. Then we're like, let's do it at Red Rocks, right? So right. I'm talking about artists playing on clouds and underwater and there's dragons, but there's probably a pretty big segment of the market that doesn't want that, but would like to be at Red Rocks. Um, now, maybe the answer is in the middle, Steve. Maybe it's a rendered video game version of Red Rock that looks really close, but then allows you to have more interactivity than just a stream of Red Rocks. But I like that example because if you were to ask me just gut instinct, they'd be like, nah, people don't want Red Rocks, they want dragons. But then I was re-listening to the podcast when you were using the Red Rocks example, and I was like, people love Red Rocks. Like, so when they have access to this stuff, the degree that they're gonna want it to be, how much is otherworldly and things you can't do in the real world? Or, but how much are, maybe people are gonna be like, that's too much. I need some stuff that's like, the real world because it grounds me. So there's going to be some mix and a bunch of stuff we don't know. I think it's a really great question because I think different demographic pockets are going to respond very differently. And we talk about the metaverse right now. Like, I think if you were going to shortcut it, everyone's like, it's Fortnite, but like, that's what it is. And we're just all in Fortnite. But like, there's probably a bunch of people who that's not what they want. And we have to figure all that out. So I think it's a great question. No, I'm with you. And, and it is, you know, we're working on stuff now that's, that's iconic venues, iconic street addresses, places that are real that have an affinity people have an affinity for artists may have an affinity for but i, I think there's space for both right I, I think it's really interesting to play in outer space there's a company called volta xr that we're working with and we'll get into a we'll plug them on future worlds 2022 but a bunch of companies that are coming out to this conference are showing off technology that isn't real life based it's it's generated from a performance or, or a creator's mind but that can also take place in relation to or at or around a familiar setting that that are totally. you know, that, 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 that kind of garners that type of crowd. I mean, if you're a you know, if you're a mod kid in 1986, you're gonna hang out at certain places, right? You're gonna drive a Vespa, whatever. It's it's there's certain like cultural identifiers that I think are important and I think people glom onto. And and if you start putting those together and letting people create on their own, um, you're going to have well, some more satisfying experiences. That's how I see it. It's a great example to talk about because I think that we have to keep in mind for um, social outcomes of the metaverse that we can't plan until it exists. So 
I don't think any of us who were, I was a huge evangelist for artists using social media and everyone using social media was coming out. I didn't predict, I didn't predict the fake news and some of the misinformation things that happened. Um, and so there's a lot of negative side effects that none of us early evangelists believed in. There's also other positive side effects that we didn't, I think, properly capture. And this one I think is really important to the conversations we're having. Instagram driving tourism to real world places so that people could get the photo in front of the monuments. Like we know that is a distinct phenomenon. The wildflower blooms when they would happen here in California, like there were just traffic backed up, you know, for hours, but that was for the Instagram because the pictures were for whatever, TikTok or whatever, because they were so amazing. So now let's go back to your point about Red Rock. You could you could have this world, this, this world where the fidelity is good enough where someone wants to go to a virtual show at Red Rocks and take a picture of themselves or their avatar, or whatever, at Red Rocks in the metaverse, but however the fidelity is, so they can say they went to Red Rocks, right? Like, so you're having a conversation with me and then the kid, and then we're like, I, yeah, I saw a show at Red Rocks, and the kid's like, me too. And then I'm like, wait, but I, I was at Red, the real Red Rocks. And they're like, oh, no, I, I was in the virtual one, but I got a picture, and I feel like I experienced it. It's going to be, you know what I mean? So it's like, I'm kind of I'm kind of like not factoring in your point about like these are, who knows how it'll play out is what I'm saying. Like, people may want to go to exact photorealistic replicas of existing things because that's how they can share with people if they experience them. And we don't know how that will all play out. I had a thought this morning, right? And I, I just thought, to me, this is like a dream, right? In a dream, I, I tend to dream in 3D, right? It's it's like I'm there. I feel like I'm there. I see things as if I was seeing them in real life. Mm-hmm. I may never have been to that place, but from the, you know, the, the thoughts in my brain or whatever input I've had over the days or years or weeks or whatever, that place formulates. And I go, oh, that's Croatia, Right, I've never been to Croatia, but yeah, I can imagine yeah. from the inputs that I've had what yeah. it looks like, and then I'm walking down a street in Croatia, and there's my friend. That that is, it happens in dream life all the time. Every one of us mm-hmm. has experienced, I think, something like that. Mm-hmm. If that is what the metaverse becomes, and we can click into a dream state, that is that's mind blowing. Right, that's going to change the way people relate you're you're going to have people that are in areas that have never traveled five miles from their home traveling anywhere they want right and and yes they're not experiencing the exact same in real life but it would be similar to a dream and and i think the visceral experience inside your mind would be very strong and it would it would it would be the next best thing to actually physically being there yeah there's some point at which the fidelity is enough for the senses to be close enough to being there. Again, a little harder with cameras because it's hard to like keep the fidelity high when you zoom in. But again, it's all tech. If anyone doesn't think cameras are gonna keep getting better then just look at the iPhone release schedule. So at some point cameras will probably be able to do this or Unreal Engine's rendering will be so lifelike that it's gonna be no difference. So the technology will get better. It's pretty astounding if you actually stop to think about how bad the tech is today and how excited we are when we know how much better the tech is going to get, but but to, to, to the kind of conversation about the, the most exciting part about the value exchange in music is like the the dialogue and the relationship between the fans and the artists, that is still, you know, that's not real yet. Like there, there's not a true regular cadence of, of feeling like you go to virtual concerts, and they're one off, they happen 
infrequently. They happen on different platforms with different controllers. Um, so it's just so new that there's no artist that's been able to do it enough to figure out how to build that into their artistic cycle. The way that you can look at certain artists in popular culture today who have mastered Instagram and TikTok on their own, and it's an extension of their brand, it's an extension of their art, and, it's, and it's, it affects what music they make, um, that's magical um, when that can happen. And I don't think we're very close yet to having enough at-bats, as we sometimes say, or cycles to even understand what that looks like when it's a regular thing, what the fans want, you know, what like, you know, you have like, we don't know yet. We just, we just don't know. But we definitely see that fans and artists like it and that, that it's more than just like it. They're feeling something at these virtual concerts. They're, you, you, you know, Wave, um, is, you know, Wave's current CMO is named Tina. She comes from Netflix. She's a pro marketer. She does follow-up servers. She really finds out what consumers want. And like, generally what Wave is seeing is that fans love this and the artists love it. And we're just at the beginning of this magical journey of discovering the language that will invariably bring the art forms closer together, allow things that can't happen in the real world, connections between artists and fans that feel more like the real thing that happen, can happen more frequently. And then you know, from your experience, a great business should emerge around that that works for everybody. So, Sure. And as my one of my best friends would say, I, I said almost real time and you know, I, I don't know how many things are in real time anymore, but a lot of this is going to happen very close to real time. Um, we're going to wrap up here. I also want to let people know that Jeremy will be at Future Worlds 2022, November 12th in Los Angeles at Playa Studios in, in Culver City. You can go to futureworlds.co um, for information and, and tickets. And there'll be a bunch of people on panels from fashion to virtual real estate to music to digital products to IP rights, tech development, etc. Um, it's going to be a great day. It's a one-day event on Saturday, November 12th. Please come and check us out. Um, I want to hopefully thank- Hopefully lots of questions and challenge us and, and hopefully you hear something on here that you disagree with and you'll show up and you'll <laughs> you'll give us your point of view because you know, that, that's the best part. It, that interaction, again, it's, it's yeah. building that community. Um, a lot of cutting edge folks. But I want to thank Jeremy Welt for joining us today. Um, Thanks for having hand, me, Steve. And I look forward to talking to you very soon, Jeremy. Thank you. Can't wait. Thanks again, Steve. Talk to you soon. Bye, buddy. Bye-bye.